This is Dave Perry. In this podcast and three more that follow, I'll highlight a wide range of ethical views on killing and war in several of the world's major religious traditions. This episode will examine Hindu and Buddhist traditions. The next one will discuss Judaism, the third Christianity, and the fourth will explore Islam and state some conclusions about all the traditions that I've then addressed. These four podcasts are adapted from my book entitled Partly Cloudy, Ethics in War, Espionage, Covert Action, and Interrogation. If you'd like to purchase a copy, go to my website, practicalethicsinstitute.com, where you'll see both a link to my publisher and a code that will give you a 30% off the regular price. I think we can learn a lot about a religion or culture by paying close attention to how it answers the question, is it ever right to kill? People raised within particular religious faiths are sometimes led to believe that their tradition has always held a consistent set of ethical principles. But what we find when we look closely at virtually any religious tradition are teachings that are at least paradoxical and in some cases downright contradictory. Every major religious faith regards life, especially human life, as sacred in some sense and affirms mercy and compassion as basic human obligations. But sacred scriptures and influential religious authorities have also taught that it's sometimes right to kill other human beings. Some have gone so far as to rationalize wars of annihilation against heretics and infidels. Now, religion is not clearly is clearly not the only catalyst of total war and other forms of indiscriminate violence. People seem prone to inventing all sorts of rationales for mass killing without necessarily feeling the need to cite the will of God. Some of the most appalling atrocities in history have been rooted not in religion per se, but rather in racial or class hatred. Think of the 20th century victims of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot. There may even be a genetic tendency in our species, like that of our chimpanzee relatives, to fear, hate, attack, and kill others for no reason than that they are not one of us. But religious violence can take on a particularly intense and ruthless character if the objects of that violence are seen as blaspheming or insulting God, and thus as enemies of God who must be humbled or destroyed. I'm confident, though, that some ethical principles to limit violence can be affirmed by all of the world's major religions, even if the use of deadly force should not be prohibited completely. Now, obviously, I can't do complete justice to the complexity of any significant religious tradition's ethical views in a short podcast, but I hope at least to illuminate some important similarities and differences among the major faiths on pacifism, limited war, and total war. I also hope that my listeners will benefit from these episodes in the following ways. First, in recognizing the diversity of teachings within their own religion, especially its moments of violent intolerance of other faiths, they ought to be less likely to proclaim their country's wars as divinely ordained struggles against infidels who might be denied basic rights as a result. Second, in learning to appreciate certain ethical values and precepts in other traditions as similar to to those of their own, they'll be better able to support diplomatic initiatives between countries and cultures to reduce the likelihood of war and lessen its severity. And third, in the battle for hearts and minds in regions like the Middle East, 
they may learn ways to ally with moderates against the murderous ideologies of religious extremists. My focus in this episode now will be on Eastern religions. First, as noted by Klaus Klostermeyer, the Hindu tradition reveres all living things and affirms an ethical principle of ahimsa, meaning non-harm, non-violence, and avoiding causing anyone injury. This ethic has often led Hindus to adopt vegetarianism and strict pacifism, and has been especially strong in Buddhism and Jainism, both offshoots of the Hindu tradition. The pacifist ethic nurtured by these faiths lives today among the followers of Mahatma Gandhi and renowned Buddhist teachers like the Dalai Lama of Tibet. According to Gandhi, who drew on multiple religious traditions to formulate his core ethical teachings, the moral implications of ahimsa are profound and holistic, encompassing attitudes and dispositions as well as decisions and actions. In its negative form, Gandhi wrote, ahimsa means not injuring any living being, whether by body or mind. In its positive form, ahimsa means the largest love, the greatest charity. If I'm a follower of ahimsa, I must love my enemy. Similarly, a sacred Jain text quoted by John Ferguson says, one may not kill, ill-use, insult, torment, or persecute any kind of living being. But we should note that if that rule were followed strictly, we wouldn't be allowed to harm or kill any animal or plant for food, shelter, or any other purpose. We would only be allowed to eat things like fruits, some vegetables, nuts, milk, and other foods we're gathering them wouldn't harm or kill the plant or animal. Could we survive that way as a species? Probably not in large numbers. We certainly wouldn't dominate nature as we have for eons. Perhaps the Earth's ecosystems would be much healthier today had the whole human species adopted the Jain ethic. But I digress. Some sacred Buddhist texts limit the scope of the prohibition on killing to sentient beings, meaning animals that can suffer. This would permit us to kill plants and some primitive animals for food and clothing, but we wouldn't be allowed to kill human beings or other animals that have the capacity for consciousness and feeling. Some Buddhists are vegetarians or vegans in light of this ethic. Peter Harvey says that Buddhism also stresses the need for people constantly to be aware of how hateful and greedy emotions can arise in order to avoid being controlled by them and lashing out violently against others. Even non-Buddhists can see the wisdom in that kind of mindfulness, as difficult as it may be to practice consistently. Buddhism seeks to undermine social divisions like the Hindu caste system, while at the same time reinforcing its virtue of compassion and the obligation of non-injury. As a result, the duty not to kill people or other sentient animals applies in theory to all Buddhists, although this, though, sorry, as an absolute duty, it has often been restricted in practice to Buddhist monks and nuns. According to John Ferguson, former Burmese Prime Minister U Nu even renounced the use of force by the state, claiming that Buddhism cannot sanction even such acts of violence as are necessary for the preservation of public order in society. How would pacifists within those faiths respond to a concern that nonviolence might have little or no persuasive effect on a ruthless enemy and could result in the destruction of their community? 
Some contend that violence only seems to be effective, but usually ends up merely, produce, merely producing more violence. Gandhi has often been quoted as saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Others would admit that nonviolence sometimes doesn't succeed in deterring or ending violence, but claim that success is not as important as doing the right thing. The Christian pacifist Theodore Kuhns stated that point in a matter that would be affirmed by many Hindus and Buddhists as well. Although pacifists know that sometimes turning the other cheek is effective in transforming the enemy, Kuhns wrote, they tend to stress readiness to accept suffering as an essential part of the disarmed life. According to David Chappelle, a Vietnamese Buddhist group once proclaimed bravely, we solemnly promise never to hate those who kill us, above all, never to use violence to answer violence, even if the antagonists see us as enemies and kill until they annihilate us. Hindus and Buddhists believe in the law of karma, which rigorously enforces justice through an indefinite series of rebirths. So even if evil people happen to succeed in their present lives, karma will ensure that they'll pay for their evil in their next life. Trusting in the law of karma can help to motivate adherents of these faiths to overcome selfishness and hostility and resist succumbing to violence. This functions similarly to Jewish, Christian, and Muslim beliefs in a heavenly reward for living a devout and moral life, even if one suffers great injustice during one's earthly life at the hands of evil people. In practice, though, Eastern traditions often permit some exceptions to the general rule against killing. Even Gandhi found it difficult consistently to affirm a, a strict rule of ahimsa or nonviolence. According to Manfred Steger, during World War I, Gandhi openly supported the British war effort, enthusiastically recruiting Indians to serve as frontline troops. Apparently, he believed that such support would prove to the British that India had earned its right to independence. He also claimed in 1918 that Indians might only inculcate the courage required for nonviolent civil disobedience and national independence by first acquiring military courage through the experience of combat. For many centuries, the Hindu caste system included a distinct and honored caste of warriors, the Kshatriyas, whose role in defending the community was force, with force was considered to be just as important as that of the Brahmin or priestly caste. If a Hindu man were born into the warrior caste, he could be obligated to kill enemy soldiers in defense of the community if so ordered. His social role would not permit him to be a pacifist. Hindu warriors must kill with the proper disposition, though, without greed or anger. Read the pep talk given by the god Krishna to the reluctant warrior prince Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, in which Krishna appeals to his kshatriya honor to shame him into fighting. Some Hindu gods like Indra are believed to have warlike characteristics themselves and are praised for destroying the enemies of orthodox Hindu teachings and practices. So justified war and holy war are not entirely foreign to Hinduism. And according to Catherine Young, some contemporary Hindus cite traditional warrior values in support of India's possession of nuclear weapons. On the other hand, Klaus Klostermeyer says, that total war, in the sense of indiscriminate killing, has often been forbidden in the Hindu tradition. 
Hindu soldiers are not to kill unarmed prisoners or civilians, apparently due in part to its sense of chivalry. It would be considered unprofessional for a Hindu soldier to harm defenseless people. According to Peter Harvey, some Buddhists have argued that killing can be justified in rare cases as the lesser of evils if the Buddhist community or other innocent people are threatened by violent attackers and if nonviolent means of persuasion and protest have not succeeded. Interestingly, even when war might be waged with just cause and as a last resort, many Buddhists still regard it as inherently sinful, so even just warriors might nonetheless expect to undergo karmic punishment. There also can be a tension in practice between Hindu and Buddhist virtues of compassion and, and equanimity, which is similar to stoic calm or emotional control. For example, in response to Arjuna's anguish in the Bhagavad Gita over the prospect of killing countless people in battle, the god Krishna counters that the wise grieve neither for the living nor the dead, because death and suffering are illusory and unreal. Sadly, Hindus and Buddhists have also resorted in practice to total war and other indiscriminate killing. The ancient Hindu book Arthashastra advocated several ruthless tactics, including unprovoked aggression, hostage-taking, terrorism, assassination by spies, and so on, whatever might be needed to maintain or increase royal power. Some modern Hindu and Buddhist leaders have openly advocated aggressive violence against people of competing religions. Equanimity was taken to extreme limits in the Japanese Bushido tradition, in which samurai were encouraged to become one with their swords and feel no pity for those they killed. Zen Buddhism was used to support a ruthless warrior ethic before and during World War II, according to Brian Victoria. Xenophobic Buddhists in Sri Lanka have promoted the ethnic cleansing of Hindu Tamils from the island. An influential Thai monk claimed in the 1970s that killing communists would actually produce karmic merit. And recently, the Buddhist monk Wirathu in Burma or Myanmar preached hatred and violence against his country's Rohingya Muslim minority. And the man who assassinated Gandhi in 1948 was a member of a radical Hindu sect that opposed any political compromise with Islam or other faiths. But of course, it's very difficult to see how such things can be justified in light of the core ethical values of compassion and ahimsa in Eastern religious traditions. In the Western monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we also encounter a mixture of moral values, some restraining war, others promoting it. Those traditions will be examined in my next three podcasts. This is Dave Perry, director of the Practical Ethics Institute. Thanks for listening.